Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome once again to Sunday Morning Digital Cathedral. Coming to you live out of Houston, Texas, and it's so good to have you with me this morning. Hope you're having a great kickoff to your Sunday. If you've got your coffee ready, your orange juice, and you're ready to get into a little bit of teaching this morning. If you've been following me over the last several weeks, you know that we're working our way through the books of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And this morning we are up to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to take this whole chapter on this morning because it really covers one theme. Chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul zeroes in on, uh, he really hones in on manifesting the message, putting boots on the ground, living this message out. So if you uh, look at chapters 4, 5, and 6, remember I told you that Paul very conveniently divides the book of Ephesians into two sections. It's six chapters. The first three chapters, he talks to us about who we've always been, identity, uh, sonship. He, he really lays out some great foundation. And then the last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, and he really hones in and out on 5, he talks about how to live this message out. Now, if you take chapters 4, 5, and 6, not in the context of the first three chapters, it's very easy to get legalistic and works-centered uh, or oriented on what Paul is saying. And a lot of churches have done that. We pick up on things in chapters 4, 5, and 6 that tell us uh, how to live, what to do, and we, we can make, make those into almost some kind of behavioral chart that we want to tick off all the boxes to make sure that we're living like we should live. But when you, when you take uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6 within the context of the first three chapters, it tells us, you know, that tells us who, who we are and who we've always been. When you take the context of those first three chapters, then all of the activity of chapters 4, 5, and 6 comes out of what Paul taught us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. I don't have time to go back and, and even summarize the first three chapters. If you haven't looked at the teaching on those first three chapters, make sure you back up a few videos, a few teachings, and you pick those up because it's absolutely essential if you're going to manifest the message that Paul taught that you get the first three chapters down deep in your spirit so that you can live out, out of those chapters. So 4, 5, and 6 comes out of identity as divinity that we learned in the first three chapters and the love nature that Paul so so eloquently and powerfully gives us in chapters one, two, and three. So this morning, I'm not downplaying uh, living out of the chapters one, two, and three because I think the living out, the manifestation of a message is the, is the actual test of a good theology or belief system. I don't put a lot of credence into something that we can't live. So if, if Paul really taught us effectively and we embraced chapters one, two, and three, then the living out of four, five, and six comes from what he taught us in the first three chapters. Hope I'm not confusing you at the start of the teaching today. What I'm trying to do is lay out the lines of distinction. First three chapters, uh, he lays out who you are, what you are, what you possess. Then chapters four, five, six, he starts breaking it down into some practical ways to live it out. So what we're doing in the Digital Cathedral over these months, very simply, we're learning the message, the mission, and the method of the kingdom, and as Paul taught it. So sons and daughters are living out what we believe. So I'm trying to adjust 
and help you to believe the right things so that we can live the right things. Chapters four, five, and six gives us some great insight how the life looks, how it will naturally manifest, how it will evolve when uh, the first three chapters, uh, you've really, you really, those word, the word of Paul in the first three chapters really becomes you. There's no other way around it. I think sometimes in the grace message, we have wandered off a little bit and we think that grace doesn't mean that we do. Uh, I, I'm doing a lot today. I'm, I'm doing more teaching, studying, uh, traveling, ministering to people than I ever did. I'm, my life is filled up with do. Grace doesn't mean you don't do. Grace means, listen to me carefully, grace means that you don't do to earn by what you do. So we don't, we don't earn by what we do, but it doesn't mean that we don't do. So he gives us a lot of what we need to be doing in chapters four, five, and six. So let's begin to break this fifth chapter down a little bit. I wanna walk through the verses and I'll clump some of them together in this fifth chapter because Paul, Paul talks about a continuity of thought in some of the verses. But in this very first verse, he talks to us, he begins to speak to us about how to live the message out from chapters one, two, three. And again, if you haven't, if you haven't looked at chapters one, two, and three, you really need to do that. And if you don't wanna take time to, to uh, look at all the videos, the Spirit of Truth, I'm absolutely confident, if you'll read the first three chapters, and you should read them over and over, because it, it, they're so packed with not just information, but revelation, that you'll pick up more and more every time you read those first three chapters. So he begins to tell us now how we can live this message out effectively and dynamically. Verse one, he says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. So in simplicity, dear children, from a simplistic standpoint, this shouldn't be difficult, shouldn't be hard. So he says, I want you to do this as, as imitators. Now, personally, I'm not crazy about the word imitate. Uh, on some level, it, it reminds me of something that's not fake or genuine. It sounds like you're acting out. So when you, Im he says, I want you to, to imitate God as dear children. So I did a little bit of looking into what this word imitate really means. In the Greek, the word imitate means a God-approved example or model. To imitate is a God-approved example or model. Maybe a better word than imitate, and if I were translating these verses, I would probably use this. A better word than imitate would be reflect or mirror. So when you look at verse one, I'd like to insert reflect or mirror into that first verse. So he says to us in verse one, therefore be a reflector or a mirror of God as dear children. So when we fully represent as, as, as the one that we're mirroring, then we're reflecting the perfect image of who he is. So I really like that. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came himself to reflect or mirror to show us exactly how God, uh, how, we, how we thought, what his attitude was, how he dealt with humanity. So I think that when you and I can maybe inject that into there, it gives us a little bit better idea of what we're to do. We're to be, uh, we are to reflect or to mirror God like children. So in simplicity, not, not with a lot of complex uh, ideas. So verse two, he gets into a little bit more on how we can effectively reflect and mirror. So listen closely. So verse one, he says, therefore, I want you to be a mirror of God as dear children. And here's how he says we can do that. 
You walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So he says, this, how, this is how you can begin to mirror the message. You let this love walk become the premier thing in your life, just like Jesus did. I think love is something we've heard our whole life in church. We've heard, heard the message of love. We should love, love one another, love God with all our hearts. We've heard the message of love. But I'm sensing today that there is a, a, there's a, a refreshing of that message. It's coming out stronger and deeper than I've ever seen it. And maybe it's just that it's coming down into my life deeper. I think we're we really got to live this message of love out. If we're going to reflect the Father, then he says we need to love like Christ loves. And that means we even love people that have hurt us, wronged us, treated us unjustly. Maybe you've had some encounters lately where you go, man, that I just didn't get handled right there. That wasn't the way. I mean, what were they thinking? Why did, why did they deal with me? Why did they treat me that way? And it's easy to put up an offense or a wall, but he, but he says, no, that's not the way we reflect, reflect the Father. We reflect by walking in love, even as Christ loved us. So it's a, it's a love walk to others on a level that Christ loved us and demonstrated it by walking it out even to the cross. So verse two says that when we demonstrate that kind of love, that we can even love those that don't use us in the right way or slight us, offend us, talk about us behind our back. I mean, there's a multiplicity of ways and reasons why we, it, it makes it difficult to love people, doesn't it? But I think the message of love today is coming down strong enough and we're becoming mature enough in our, in our, in our life for Christ as sons that we can begin to let that love even come down deeper and show itself stronger than it ever has. Now in verses three to seven, he's gonna show us how not to reflect or mirror God as dear children. Now verse three, seven, I'm gonna clump it together because he says, okay, I've told you how to do it. I want you to, to reflect the Father, walk in love as Christ did. That's how you're gonna show the message that you believe in from chapters one, two, and three. But here's how it shouldn't look. All right, let me read verses three to seven because he puts them all together. Verse three, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, he says in verse four, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Verse five, but this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, I, I underlined that in my Bible. He does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, there's a whole lot in those four verses. But he says that when we, when we do these things, we're really not showing the kingdom and we're not inheriting the kingdom. Now that doesn't mean, that has nothing to do with who goes to heaven, who, go, you know, who has eternal punishment. I mean, we've kind of kicked that one to the curb, but it has nothing to do with eternal destiny. Let me put it that way. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is now. When you, when you enter into those things, it cuts off 
the inheritance that you can enjoy, that you are to enjoy in this lifetime. That's what he's getting at. And he says, on those that do that, the wrath, now remember everything, God is love, everything that God does comes out of a love nature. And we've learned that wrath is not anger, it's not hostility, it's not hate. It's a very intense emotion. The most, let me, let me tell you what he's saying here. The most intense emotion that God can demonstrate is the emotion of love. So what God does to those that enter into these things, he demonstrates, this is so good, he demonstrates his love in a more powerful way than before. That intense emotion, that, that love. Wrath is not a real good interpretation of that word. So knowing the character of the Father, he takes the love dial and he just shows him his love more and more, his forgiveness on a deeper level. Remember, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. So God's not looking to, to separate these people. He's just saying you can't live demonstrating verses three to seven. You can't live in what I've prepared for you on this planet but I'm gonna take my love, I'm gonna love you stronger than you've ever been loved before until my goodness, you see it, the light bulb comes on and it leads you to repentance. You know, once, once you get chapters one through three into your life, it's integrated in, you're living it out, you can no more do verses three to seven than Jesus could. Verses three to seven, that's not Jesus and that's, that's not you. you, that's the wrong identity. Believers, people who, uh, who understand the gospel, who've really been confronted with the gospel, that still do these things, they don't understand identity. They don't understand the first three chapters. They don't understand that they were always in Christ since the foundation of the world. They've, they have serious difficulties and problems with their understanding because if they understood, they wouldn't be doing this. It's not a work, it's just a natural outflow of our life that we enter into. What is it, Titus 2, verse 11 and 12? It says that the grace that has appeared to all men bringing salvation has taught us how we can live righteously and holy and blamelessly in this generation or in this world. So grace teaches us, grace brings us out of that verses three to seven. It doesn't encourage it, it doesn't endorse it. In fact, Grace will teach you. It will empower you. Grace is the power to do the reflecting and the manifesting of the Father in this earth. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying when you mirror the Father and you walk in love, the thoughts, your deeds, your character will reflect the Father and these chains and these bonds that have not reflected your true identity, that have not shown who you really are, they begin to fall off of you, right? They fall off naturally, without effort, without work. Now in verses 15 to 21, he gives us some really practical advice. So let's look at this. In, in verse 15 through the first part of the 18th verse, he says, stay out of this. Don't, don't enter into this. Don't, don't live this way. So he gives us a little bit more. In verse 15, he says, see then that you walk circumspectly or carefully. That's what circumspectly means. That's, that's a word we don't use a lot. Not as fools, but as wise in redeeming the time because the days are evil. So he says, be careful. Don't walk as a fool. Be wise because what is surrounding you and trying to influence you is an evil force. So don't give it, don't give it a place. Verse 17. 
Therefore, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. Now, that word dissipation is not in my vocabulary. I don't use the word dissipation, so I checked it out. The word dissipation actually means a surrender of energy and time. <clears throat> so watch what Paul is saying here. He's saying, don't be drunk with wine, which is a big waste of time and energy. <laughs> I like that. Don't be drunk with wine. He didn't say he couldn't drink wine. He said, just don't get drunk with it because you're wasting your time, your energy, and I might say money also. So he, he's giving us some things here. He says, don't be unwise. Don't be foolish. Understand you're surrounded with evil. The times are evil, but don't give those things place. Don't get drunk with wine. But he ends up the 18th verse, and he says, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, from the last part of the 18th verse through the 21st verse, he tells us how to stay out of, how not to be unwise, how not to be influenced by evil. From verse the last part of the verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Through verse 21, he says, okay, now here's how you can, you can demonstrate not being unwise, understanding what the will of the, the Lord is for you. So here's how he tells us. Remember, be filled with the Spirit, last part, 18 verse. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That means in an edifying manner, building up one another. Always speak positively to one another. Verse 20 is, is, is a sticker. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I should set the whole day, I should do the whole teaching on this, this 20th verse. Giving thanks always for all things. That's a mindset, that's an attitude. That's a style of life where it, he didn't say, uh, uh, you know, that you, you have to thank God when difficulties come, but he said when you're in the middle of all this, you still praise God, you still thank him. You still have a life that, that mirrors um, the character of the Father, that, that mirrors the character of Jesus. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. So let me remind you, this is all a work of the Spirit, last part of verse 18. This is not something we do out of works. This is not something we do uh, out of our own initiative. Verse 18b, but he says in last part, be filled with the Spirit, that all is an outworking of chapters one, two, and three. And he's reminding us that we don't do this of ourselves. Are you with me? Are you okay? When chapters one, two, and three settle in, <clears throat> then the life of 18b through 21 is not an effort, but it's a natural flow of love and devotion that we experience. So Paul is... Paul is now going to illustrate for us in a metaphor, and I believe this is a metaphor, how this union with Christ, how this life that we're describing, living, manifesting, how it unfolds. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I almost left this out. I almost left this section out because it's been used to batter women in a wrongful way. It's been, it's been used in marriage to tell women that they better submit to their husbands. You better do what your husband tells you, that somehow you don't have brain one and your husband needs uh, to make sure that you don't get all messed up. That's not what this passage is about. He gives us the bottom line on this passage and we're gonna go through it and explain a little bit about 
in a metaphor manner, which I think Paul is speaking, but he's doing it, you know, with something you familiarize yourself. You know, a parable, a parable is when you take a familiar subject and you draw spiritual truth out of it. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. But he, I'm going I'm to read this from 22 down to 33 because he covers this, this area, but he bottom lines what it's all about, what these nine or 10 verses are all about in verse 32. So now pay real close attention. In verse 32, he says, I'm, I'm speaking to you a great mystery. So he's going to talk to us for 10 or 11 verses in a mystery. And this is why I say I think this is a metaphor. And he's just using a familiar relationship of husband and wife to draw the metaphor out. He says, I'm speaking a mystery, but I'm really speaking about Christ in the church. So I want us to keep in mind that as we go through these verses, he's, he's not specifically speaking about marriage. He's speaking about the relationship of Christ in the church. So again, let me say, I, I almost stayed away from this because I know that we still have this mindset tucked away somewhere that this is talking about marriage and it's been used to make women submit or to feel somehow that they're less than the husband or less than the man. And we've missed the entire point of the 10 verses, which is the mystery speaking about Christ in the church. Now, sometimes when you tell a parable, sometimes when you tell a parable, which he did in a mystery form, you kind of over, you over inflate it to get the truth across. You, you make it larger than life so that you get the main point. Remember the main point he said in verse 32 is the relationship that Christ has with the church. So we're going to look at it in that light, okay? I'm not going to draw specifically because I think he's overdoing it. It's overdone about the marriage relationship, but he's doing it to make a point. So I want you to see Christ and the church in this. Are we ready? All right, verse 22. Verse 22. He says, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. So remember, keep it in context, Christ in the church. He's saying that there is a mutual yielding, which happens in marriage as well. There's a mutual yielding of Christ to the church and the church to Christ. And just putting it on the level of marriage, anytime there's not a mutual yielding back and forth, then you don't have that oneness of union that he's driving at here. So the, the, the love that Christ shares for the church and the church shares for Christ should be a contagious love that grows. It's not a 50-50 relationship. The relationship that we have with Christ is not 50-50. It's 100-100. The church responds 100% to the 100% love that Christ demonstrates and gives to the church. It's his initiative. We respond 100% to the 100% initiative love that Christ gives to the church. Uh, uh, we love him, scripture says, because he first loved us. So he's not setting back. And when we've brought this into the marriage, and I've heard this so many times in church that it makes me want to gag, honestly. Jesus doesn't set back waiting for us to submit and then love us. Out of a loving relationship, we respond to that love. And that's what he's driving home here. He's trying to get across, the Lord loves you 100%. Out of that 100% love, we respond back to it. All right, let's come down to verse 23. Let's keep moving through this because I want to bring this into today's life. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. 
<clears throat> so the same way that Christ gives his life to the church, which is his body, fully gives it, doesn't ask anything in return. He's saying in the marriage relationship, that's how the husband should also work with the wife. It's, it's Christ leading us. It's Christ empowering us. He's saying in verse 23 to live out what he's just taught us in the first three chapters. Verse 24, let's keep moving through this. Verse 24, therefore, just as Christ is, just for, therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. There again, we've used that verse to beat wives and tell them you have to follow what your husband says. You don't have a mind of your own. And that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the church yielding to the mind of Christ in everything that we do. And we've learned that when we work out of a Christ-mindedness, a Christocentric lifestyle, that that's the lifestyle that makes us the happiest. He's saying in verse 24 that the church enjoys everything that Jesus has come to give us, the full package of benefits, as we yield to him, we enjoy what he has given to us. Are you with me? Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. It's this love that cares and protects the church. He's not gonna let anything happen to your life because he, he loves you so much that he makes sure that he cares for you, he protects you, he provides you, just as the husband should the wife. I mean, guys, come on. If somebody breaks through the door at night, who's, who's going to go face the intruder? Is it you or your wife? You protect her. You stand in front of her. You, you, you don't push your wife out of bed and go say, what was that bump in the night? You go check it out. No, you as the man. And in the same way, Christ is in front of us, protecting us. He's our shield. Nothing gets to us but what it passes through him. Verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loves him himself loves his wife. So the most valuable thing, I think Jesus, Paul is driving at here, the most valuable thing that Christ can give to us is the absolute assurance and knowing, full knowledge, that he loves us without reservation. He loves us without any, any strings attached. He loves us regardless of our response. And he's saying that a man loves his own body, therefore he should love his wife in the same way. So Paul's not setting up some kind of marital competition, and I point that out. It's not a marital competition between the husband and the wife in a marriage where we can sit down, and I've done this so many times when I was pastoring over the 50 years I pastored. I had it so many times where people would sit, having marriage problems, sit in my office, and they would use this passage from Ephesians to throw in each other's face. The husband would say, you know, you're not submitting to me. You're not coming under my authority. And the wife would say, well, you're not loving me like Christ loves the church. Uh, and, and they would just point out each other's scriptural shortcomings. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about the relationship of Christ and the church, and he's using the metaphor of marriage. I almost want to say it's a parable. He's using, talking about the parable of marriage, and he's kind of, I think, blowing it up to its, beyond its normal expectations at times to demonstrate beyond the normal expectations that Jesus has 
in giving to us as his bride or to give to us the church. Hope I'm driving this home. Hope, I'm, hope you're getting this. So if you've been one of those guys, one of those men that like to use Ephesians 5 to tell your wife, submit, woman, you're under my authority. Or if you're one of those wives that are telling your husband, you don't love me like Christ loves the church, you've missed the whole point of what Paul is getting at in this fifth chapter. In, in truth be told, if you live out Ephesians 1 to 3, then you've come to where Christ is with the church. It's 100%, 100% relationship. It's not a 50-50, it's not a 50-50 in marriage. I've, I've never yet had counseled anybody in marriage that was doing 100-100. It's always, I've done, I, you know, I've done my part, you, you, you got a lot of problems here, you got faults, you need counseling, I don't need it, but you do. It's never 100-100. When it's 100-100, then that's when we're walking this message out. Now, in case you don't get it, in case it's really tough, he, finals, he finally, comes down to verse 33, he says, Nevertheless, let each of you in particular love his wife as himself and see that the wife respects her husband. So what, what, what's, what's he saying here? He's saying that the husband should love the wife. In other words, the husband should know no end to his serving his wife. And the wife should see that she respects, what does that mean? That means that she should give him first place above all others. And I think that's only logical and fair. So he says, in case you've missed the boat on this, what I'm going to say is that Christ loves the church. He knows no end to serving us. He knows absolutely no end to serving us. And keeping with the, the parable or the metaphor, then he's saying that we as the church need to put our, our husband, need to put Christ in first place above everything else. Now, when that, that operates, again, 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 and again, you can't do that in flesh form. You can't put Christ first place above everything else in your own strength. It, it has to come out of a power of spirit. So let me, let me bring this down now into 2020. Let me bring this down into where we live. Because it's one thing to get your head around grace. It's one thing to get your head around the finished work of the cross. It's you know, the unconditional love, mercy that endures forever. It's one thing to get conceptually grasp it. It's, it's another thing uh, in the push and pull of life to walk this message out. I understand that. That's why I keep going back to these first three chapters. Those have got to be the foundation. If you're taking four, five, and six and trying to do this, you're going to get all bound up in legalism and performance, and I can't do it, and it's beyond me. And that, I understand that. Ephesians 1 to 3 is the foundation. I keep saying it because it's so true. What, to, what turned Paul upside down to write this was back in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. All right? this, is what, this is what caused Paul to pour out everything that he did in his writings. It was this one revelation in Galatians 1, 15, 16, when he said, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb to reveal the Christ that is in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That revelation that Christ had always been in Paul, the Christ was not, was not revealed to Paul, it was revealed within Paul. And once Paul got that fact that Christ had always been in him, 
that became the foundation off which he built. And that needs to be the foundation off which you and I build. Knowing that the Christ is in us, knowing that we have that life, that empowerment already within us. He said it a little bit differently over in Colossians chapter one. And I want, I want to read that for you. In Colossians chapter one, which we're going to get to in a few weeks. It's a powerful verse of scripture. Colossians is a great book. Can't wait to get there. Colossians chapter one, verse 25. He, he lays it out just a touch different. And it goes like this. He said, I became a minister according to the stewardship of God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God in you. Verse 26. He said, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but it's now being revealed to the saints. All right. So he's talking about something that nobody has seen before. The, the mystery that Paul saw within himself, that it was Christ in him, now he's going to begin to expand on that. And this is for you and me. He says, here's the mystery. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the, of the uh, uh, glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you Gentiles, the hope of glory. So he doesn't say that it's the mystery among the saints, the believers, the church, uh, just to this little group I'm writing to. He says the great mystery is that Christ is in the Gentiles. Now they were considered the outsiders. They were considered the unbelievers. They were considered those that were, uh, didn't have the eyes of their understanding and light. And Paul said, the message that we want to carry to them is that Christ is in them. Boy, if we could take 1,500 years and teach that message to every person we come in contact with, that you're not trying to get a Jesus or a Christ from out there to come live in your heart, but we're unveiling the Christ that is always in you. I'm telling you, that's good news. That's the gospel. That would turn people's lives around. We would see drastic change in our world if we could let every man know that Christ is in him. That became the foundation then off which he built. He didn't build off his works, didn't build off his efforts. He certainly did a lot of do, but Paul learned that grace does. But it does not do to earn or merit. It does out of a, out of a source. And I want to talk a few minutes about that because the eternal Christ in you becomes the fountainhead. It becomes the enabler that allows you to fully demonstrate this message that we talk about every week. It's the Christ in you that does that. So as you live out from Christ, the Christ that is within you, it changes your heart. It changes your actions. It changes your motivation. It changes everything about you. And all of a sudden, his priorities and his values and his mission become your priorities and your values and your mission. Because you recognize that the two of you are now one. So out of that, Paul wrote uh, Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with him. We're in, in union. He went to the cross. I went with him. And it's no longer I live. It's the Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the power of the God of the Christ that lives in me. Then he said this over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let, let me read this to you because uh, this, this really, this really uh, helps us see exactly what he's trying to, to get across to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What we're demonstrating, what we're living, what we're manifesting, what we're walking out, Paul is saying it's not of us. This is just an old mud pot. He said, it's the excellency of the power that is with us because of the God that is in us. Verse eight, 
We're hard pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. That's all things going on outside of us that are trying to create in us, moving off of who we are. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. All right, let me, let, let me just read on through verse 11. Verse 10, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. He's saying, I don't care what you face. I don't care what you encounter. The whole thing is this. The life that is in you is going to come out of you. He said, whatever you're fa- we're going to be persecuted. We're going to, we're going to come under distress, but it's not going to defeat us. He said, I don't care what happens. He says, we're going to bear in this body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, that's how we manifest in this body the message. Verse 11, for we we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. I need to read that 11th verse again. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus. He tells us all those things are going to happen, right? In this world, you'll have tribulation. It's not a cakewalk. But he says in verse 11, that we may manifest the life of Christ in this this mortal body. Paul demonstrated the message, guys, but it wasn't easy for him. Paul demonstrated the message, but he went through a whole lot of junk. There was a whole lot of scuba that was thrown at Paul. He he underwent some serious changes. It, it, it takes a deep work within. And all the things that happened to Paul, he recognized it was the working of the cross, it was the working of Christ in him. It takes a deep work inside to live it outside. You're not going to demonstrate the message without, without problems. You're not going to have a victory without a battle. You're not going to have a testimony without a test. So don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trials which are to try you so some strange thing happened. It's not strange. He's connecting, listen, listen to me carefully. If you, if you haven't heard much this morning, listen for the next 10 minutes. He's connecting your Christness to your mind so that you have the mind of Christ. He's taking the Christness, the Christ that is in you, he's connecting it to your mind so that you make Christocentric decisions, so that you make choices that are Christ-centered, so that you manifest a life that mirrors, imitates, that reflects his. Proverbs chapter four and verse 23 says to guard your heart with all diligence for out of it flows the issues of life. Your heart, that inner man, sets the course based on what your mind feeds into it. So what you wanna feed into your heart is a Christocentric thought, a seed that is Christ-centered. As a man thinks in his heart, it says in Proverbs 4.23, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. I, th- I-, I quoted two verses. Let me-, let me make sure I've got right one because I don't want to fault you. I'm probably going to use both verses before I'm done this morning. But Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. I- let me fact check myself. Yes, keep your heart with all diligence. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it, out of your heart, flows the issues of of life. Your heart, that inner man, sets the course based on what you feed into it. Out of your heart flows the issues of life. What's in your heart is going to flow out. So when you think a particular way in your heart, that's the way you live. 
as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you want to change your life, if you want to change your circumstances, change what's change what you're putting into your heart. Your heart will produce what whatever you drop in it. You drop fear in your heart, it'll produce it. You drop joy into your heart, it'll produce it. What your heart is like is like ground. And what comes out of your mind, you want a crystal-centric mind because you want hybrid seed going into your into your heart that will produce. Heart has no mind. It 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 is like ground, Jesus said that when seed comes into it and it starts to grow, because of what kind of seed you put in, it may, it may grow well, it may not grow well. Things When things come up, instead of pulling the weeds, it chokes the word out. So walking out grace is not a problem because grace has you covered no matter what you do. The real difficulty, the challenge comes from allowing the Christ that is in us to be fully released as us, from us as us, so that we're walking as Christ in the earth. And you cannot manifest that when you shut your heart off. When the wrong seed, when the wrong thoughts come into your heart, you know, and it begins to manifest, uh, uh, and, and it's coming up what you don't want, then you, you've cut yourself off from the source of life, then you need to change what goes into your heart. Let me, let me lay it out to you this way. To fully live out the message that Paul taught, the message I'm teaching this morning, listen. Are you listening? To fully live out this message of Paul, the Christ within has got to have full access to your heart. As your heart grasps it and the heart grasps it and begins to grow it because of the seed that the mind has planted in it, having the Christ-centered mind is what we call renewing the spirit of your mind. We want the spirit of Christ to be the spirit that pervades our thoughts. Or we could say that puts the seed from our consciousness into our subconsciousness, or for more familiar religious terms, from your head to your heart, or from your soul to your spirit. They're all synonymous terms. Consciousness, subconsciousness, head, heart. Uh, mind, soul, uh, spirit, soul, spirit, head, heart, consciousness, subconscious. They're all, they're all, we're all saying the same thing. What's planted into your subconsciousness, what's planted into your spirit, what's planted into your heart directs you to grow, to manifest in, in, in full form what you've put in there. So what you desire, whatsoever things you desire, plant into your heart. What is your goal? What is it you want in life? Then put it into your consciousness, into your Christ-centered mind, into uh, 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 the spirit of your soul that has been renewed, and let that drop into your subconsciousness, into your heart, into your spirit, and it will grow. It's it's just this, the, the, the soul, the subconsciousness, the crystal-centric mind, you know, what you imagine, what you see, that's the connector between the visible and the invisible world. The, the, the full daily life experiences, the thoughts, the ideas, the revelation that come from our consciousness and planted into the subconsciousness, they're produced as the harvest. 
It's seed. It's going into your heart. It's going into your spirit, going into your subconsciousness. <clears throat> now, here's what I want you to begin to learn to do. I want you to begin to see what you want because it's God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The, the will that you have, and I'm speaking to you people that are mature, you, you know, you can guard your heart. You can guard what you put in there. If a thought comes into your mind, you know it's not consistent with Christocentric living. Cast it out. Cast down imaginations, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Cast it down. In, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45, I mean, let me just read a couple of verses. Probably going to say it to you a whole lot better than what I've said it over the last 44 minutes. But in Luke chapter 6, and verse 44, Jesus said it like this. Verse 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good fruit. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. <clears throat> now what you wanna to begin to speak and create in your life is something good. So you have gotta make sure that what's going in there is good. And what goes in there, out of here, out of your out of your soul, out of your consciousness, out of your Christocentric uh, mind, your, right? Are you seeing? I'm I'm telling you here. This is why we come back. We we need to walk this these verses 22 to 32 out. We need to see how much he loves us. He cares for us. He protects us. He's got us surrounded. We're drawing on chapters one, two, and three as our foundation. We know who we are. We know our identity as divinity. Um, we know that we've always been in, in him. So we have this confidence now that as we see whatsoever things you desire when you pray. See, prayer is not asking. Prayer is the realization that you have what you already ask. That's That's taking dominion. That's, that's how Jesus lived. Jesus, Paul said, or we just read what Jesus said in verse 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart, he brings forth good fruit. But an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil fruit. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you guard your heart. You guard it. You make sure what's going in there is what you want. If you don't want it, don't put it in there. Don't think it. Don't visualize it. Don't see it. All right, here's what Paul said. I'm sorry I'm getting a little bit wound up. <laughs> I'm feeling it today. I'm feeling it. Galatians. Here's how Paul said it. Galatians chapter 6, and let me read verse 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, um, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he reaps. Whatever you put in, you're going to get. Verse 8, for he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So the way that you're living today, can I just be brutally honest? The way you're living today is a product of what you have already fed into your heart. If you have fed Spirit, then you'll of the Spirit reap eternal life. You, you'll enjoy the abundant life. If you have fed chapters one, two, and three in, then you're gonna reap good things. If you don't like what's going on in your life, how about you put different seed in? You come out of this Christocentric mind. 
the soul, the spirit of a renewed mind, out of your consciousness. You start putting into your heart, into your spirit, into your subconscious. You start planting the seed in there that you want. Now, you don't have to run around telling everybody what you've done. Keep it between you and him. But just begin to, to confess it, speak it to yourself. Keep it fixed before you day and night. Then the Christ-centered life and the, the chapters four to six, the manifestation becomes the natural production as much as an apple tree is gonna produce apples. Put apple seeds in here, you produce an apple tree. Put peach seeds in, you get a peach tree. You don't put apple seeds in and get a peach tree. So if you don't want it, don't put it in there. You're gonna grow what you've planted. All right, let me, let me conclude, I'm done, I'm done. I've covered this whole fifth chapter and it's been a bunch. You need to listen to this two or three times. What you believe in your heart, not your head, that level of consciousness will produce a big harvest. You wanna use your, your mind, your soul, your consciousness as the source of good seed. It's good seed. You plant it in here. In Ephesians chapter four, five, and six, Paul's teaching us how to live out, you know, those, those first three chapters. Chapter one, verse three, he's teaching how to live out that you have already been blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You've already been blessed. You have the ability to plant the seed. Verse four in chapter one, how to live with confidence that you have always been in Christ. He's, he's trying to show you and how to live out chapter one, verse five, that you have been predetermined, pre-wired to be a manifested son of God. So today we are manifesting exactly who we are. Let's live the life that we wanna live. Let's live the life that Christ intended for us to live. Again, let's begin to put the seed that we want to enjoy the harvest from deep within our heart, our spirit, and our subconsciousness. Let's walk it out in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Father, I just pray for every person at the Digital Cathedral that we live, we walk, we have our very being in you, and we enjoy the very best in every phase and facet of our life. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. See you Wednesday night on Wednesday Night Live.